Hey, Annika. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of this week's Green Jeans. I am your one host, Annika Van Rossum, joined by my lovely co-host, Maya Van Rossum, who, if you didn't get by the last name, is my mother. We love to remind you all of that. Um, so we've got a special guest coming soon, Karen Faradin. Um, we'll do her intros and everything when she comes, but that's coming up. But first, Mom, do you have a fact check for us this week? I do have a fact check, although I would like to make the interesting observation for everybody that when Annika was born, she did not actually have my last name. <laughs> she had the last name of her father. And um, through our wonderful, loving years together as mother and daughter, and then I think as she got older and grew into her role as an activist and got to I think appreciate more and more what I did as an activist. She got to a place where she decided she wanted to share my name. And so she actually took it upon herself to legally change her name. And that is actually why Annika and I have the same name because I never changed my last name when I got married, either the first time or the last time. I have always been Maya Van Rossum. That is who I am, it's who I've always been. And I always believe that. Um, that, I don't know, that credit for what I did should go to <laughs> my family, not somebody else's family. And um, <laughs> after, after the experience of getting my name changed, well, fun, and I'm very glad I did it. I am never changing my name ever again. It is so much paperwork, so many things you have to do. And then like, if you've lived, I think at that point, I was like 22, 22 years of your life with one name, all the things you have to get switched to the new name is a pain in the butt, but I'm glad I did it. But just for anyone, but I'm never changing my name ever again. Never. <laughs> so I'm really honored that you did it. And I think that you did it for all the right reasons. And, oh, and I truthfully couldn't even imagine like taking on somebody else's name. I am Maya Kanta no. Van Rossum. That is who I am. And like, why would I suddenly, again, want to give somebody else's family um, also makes ownership name, over my life also makes my name cooler I used to always say I was like my name I, I remember saying when I was little I was like if my name was Annika Van Rossum that would be so cool and my friends in college were like yeah that would be cool like Annika Walsh is fine Annika Van Rossum I was like yeah <laughs> it's kind of cool now yeah it is it is kind of cool so I just wanted to tell people that because I think I always just I don't know I'm very proud and honored that you decided to do that it means a lot to me <laughs> on a lot of levels, more than I think you know. And um, and I'm thrilled to tell people about that. Now you have so. two kids also. I still think it's funny because when Vim was born, you said to Dave, like, I want him to have my last name because none of my kids have my last name. And Dave has kids and my dad has a kid with the last name. And now both your kids. I know, I know. Name. So that is that is truly, truly the story. So so when I was pregnant with my son, like I always knew if I had a son that I would want to name him after my favorite uncle, my own Vim. Um, and Dave was like totally on board with that right away, even though he never met my own Vim. Om is Dutch for uncle. Um, but he knew how important it was to me. And I had already lost my mother. And, um, and so I, you know, when I told him I wanted to name Vim Vim, he was right on board. And then I wanted to find a way to honor my mother in Vim's name, but Vim was a boy, my mother was a female. And um, so I decided to include my mother's father's name, 
Ernst because my mother adored her, adored her father. And then I wanted to do something for my mother and her last name was Weissmuller. So he, and so, so then his name was gonna be Vim Ernst Weissmuller. And so I thought, well, boy, Dave's really agreeing to a lot. And then when I did ask him if Vim could have my last name because Dave already had four kids with his last name, um, I expected some conversation. And he was instantly like, absolutely, of course. So Vim Ernst Weissmuller Van Rossum is his name. And then as you said, and then when you decided to change your name, <laughs> it was like so cool. We're but down it, for you. All right, all right. That's a, that's all a right, good all little right, personal right. backstory on us. Got little personal, little, little chatter. <laughs> so fact check. So, um, you know, fossil fuels is ravaging our nation, right? It is advancing the climate crisis. It is devastating people's water, people's air, people's lives, people's property values, roadways. Um, it is just wreaking havoc anywhere and everywhere where, where it happens. And so we, we need to stop the ongoing use of fossil fuels because of the climate crisis and because of all of these devastating harms inflicted on people, including the loss of people's health, just devastating, devastating consequences. Um, and yet, um, the industry continues to manufacture ways to keep itself alive, and greedy politicians continue to buy into it. Um, while greedy politicians, or maybe some of them are just stupid, I don't know, but there's really no excuse for one or the other. And so industry keeps manufacturing ways to keep itself, it's not industry, the fossil fuel industry, and so now they, they, their new plan is, is uh, they call it carbon capture and sequestration. It's really industrial carbon capture and sequestration because our natural ecosystems, our healthy forests, our healthy soils, our healthy plants, they all capture and store, sequester away carbon in a natural healthy way that is good for our communities, good for our environment and provides so many you know, of course, environmental and human health and protection values and benefits. Industrial carbon capture is carbon capture by industry, where they suck carbon out of the air and try, they say, and um, say that they're going to use it in beneficial ways that have a net impact for the climate crisis. And the fact check is that is 100% not true. Um, industrial carbon capture is actually worse for the climate crisis. And that's the prelude to the fact check, which is actually our entire show. Karen Faraday is going to come on and talk with us about um, industrial carbon capture, but also about a specific fossil fuel perpetuating cell job that industry and the politicians in their pockets have come up with and have been, been advancing in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And it um, is a stunningly horrible story. That's wild. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what Karen has to say because I have to admit, I don't know that much about carbon capture. Like I, I think it comes into my classes a lot because it's um, my law school classes talking about like different ways that they're trying to regulate the um carbon and like you know it's been brought up as like a solution maybe and one of the things I was reading today is there's that um that new it's like the super high-tech carbon capture thing I don't know what's called in um Iceland and but one of the things it was saying was only the the carbon that they're able to capture equals about three seconds of like humanity 
um, like all of our carbon. It's about that. So it's not very much, which I'm not here to tell, like any solution is a good solution, but if it's not really, if it's again, one of these things that industry is trying to use to scapegoat so they don't have to shut down because they can say like, well, we don't have to be shut down because look, there's this great technology that can suck out all the carbon. You know, I think we've talked about too in the other episodes that carbon is not, carbon is bad, but carbon is not the only bad thing coming out of a polluting industry, out of a smokestack, out of all those things you see is there's so many other horrible things happening that we don't even realize and so carbon capture is not the excuse to not shut down all these massive industries we see. Yeah, and one of the things that, that one of the primary uses of the captured carbon is they actually put it into or plan to put it into because these facilities are, are for the most part in the planning stages, just sucking up tax dollars um, mm-hmm. to, to use to... Um, construct them and defend them and sell them and everything. But anyway, the, 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 the actual, what is actually happening and or planned to happen is that that captured carbon gets put in a pipeline and gets piped <laughs> in order to be used to frack for more oil and gas, wow. a dirty fossil fuel. So it's actually that the, 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 the industry itself is, u- is fueled by fossil fuels Right. And so advancing that devastating carbon footprint. And then they suck out the carbon in order to ship it off somewhere to extract more dirty fossil fuels and all of those devastating impacts. But there are also these other solutions that they tout. Um, and that's what Karen is going to come on and talk with us about. So we're going to ask her, she just popped up, we're going to ask her to quickly give us her take on industrial carbon capture. And then we're also gonna ask her what we're what she's primarily here to talk about, which is this new cell job from the fossil fuel industry and the dirty politicians in their back pocket. Um, so now Karen knows exactly what she's in for. We were just talking about industrial carbon capture, Karen. So I just thought to quickly get your take on that and then we can talk about Nisero. But before we do that, Annika, do you, you seem prepared with a great introduction for Karen, if you want to do the honors or if you want me to do the honors. I feel like you've worked with Karen the longest. You have to do it. I love Karen. All I can say is how wonderful a human being Karen is, but I can't list all her amazing accolades. So you got to do that. High praise coming from you. I want to be you when I grow up, Monica. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be. I want to be you when I grow up, Karen. Yeah, everybody wants to be Karen. Karen is the most selfless, dedicated person I know who puts her life literally, you know, on the line every single day, just dedicated, dedicated to doing what is right and what she believes in. (laughs) Karen, I first met Karen when she started an organization called Burke's Gas Truth, which she founded and has led for I don't even know how long, but a number of years, really dedicated to taking on the fracking industry in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania um, more locally. And then the footprint of Karen's work expanded and expanded and expanded across the Commonwealth, really getting gaining not just national, but international recognition because she's such a powerhouse against the fracking industry. But then also, you know, she really got called to a, a, another effort which she um, 
it was her inspiration and she organized, it's an organization called the Better Path Coalition, which the Delaware Riverkeeper Network and Green Amendments for the Generations are both a part of. And this was designed to really help empower and bring together activists focused on the fossil fuel industry and Pennsylvania. And there again, while she may have intended a more limited focus geographically, again, this is an organization with national and international presence and resonance and inspiration. And we all turn to Karen for so many things. So um, I could go on for the whole show about how wonderful Karen is, but then we wouldn't get the benefit of Karen's <laughs> amazing knowledge. So Karen Faradin, you're a powerhouse and we are so honored that you're joining us on our on our Green Jeans podcast. Wow. Well, I, I don't even know what to say, but thank you. And of course, you know, I love both of you and I'm very honored that people of your caliber would have anything nice to say about me. So I'm really, really really flattered but thank you so much and thanks for having me well this is great so why don't we start before we talk about nacero this new evil concoction of the fossil fuel industry and their politician friends um do you want to quickly give us your take we were just we always do a fact check at the beginning of the show and we were talking about the fact check about is in we gave our perspective already we want to know your perspective is industrial carbon capture really good for addressing the climate crisis? No, in fact, it's a very bad. It's a very bad turn because it's something that is really being promoted by the fossil fuel industry. It's one of the ways that the fossil fuel industry hopes that it can stay in business and really not just stay in business, but continue to do business as usual. Um, and so um, there was this thing that I pointed to in, a, in an early letter that I wrote about uh, carbon capture and storage that um, quotes a, a, a webinar that happened last October, October of 2020, and it was for a Pennsylvania audience, and there was a fellow from the Department of Energy at the federal level uh, who was uh, leading it because they were the hosts of this particular webcast or webinar rather. And anyhow, um, he opens his remarks pretty much by saying fossil fuels are here to stay, except it's supposed to be about carbon capture and storage. And so, you know, they let on pretty quickly what this is really about. Uh, and so um, it's, uh, you know, it's an absolute waste of time that we don't have, but it's also a waste of tremendous amounts of money uh, because this technology is really expensive and it's not proven. It, times it has been attempted, it hasn't worked. Um, the only facility in the country that was really working on this is shut down already because it didn't pan out. It didn't you know, prove out to be working. So, you know, this is a, a huge experiment um, in real time and it's not working. And, and, you know, scientists like Mark Jacobson, who a lot of, I know you both know, but uh, a lot of people know him from the Solutions Project. He's a Stanford professor. I mean, he's been writing about this for a while and, you know, and he's been talking about um, how it's really not even um, expected that uh, the, the carbon that would be captured would stay in the ground. But what we know up front is that it wouldn't even be intended to because what they would use it for would be um, enhanced oil recovery. 
And so it's just, you know, the idea of it is to just use the carbon to kind of shake up the ground and get some more oil out of the ground. And, and uh, you know, a lot of it would be released right back into the atmosphere in the process of doing that. And then uh, the stuff that's supposed to be sequestered, there's no guarantee that it would be. So and that, it's not only that, but it, that, that has sort of led to all these other things um, like blue hydrogen um, and all these other false solutions that in, in the case of blue hydrogen would incorporate using carbon capture and storage. Um, there are, are ways of um, producing hydrogen from uh, various fuels now, and they have color coded all of them. <laughs> and so um, the one that currently is used to get um, hydrogen out of the, um, the natural gas process is um, called gray hydrogen tossing carbon capture and storage as a way of capturing the emissions from that process. And now all of a sudden it's blue and it's supposed to be the, you know, the way moving forward. So it's all nonsense. It's all, you know, uh, snake oil and, uh, you know, and they're doing a really good job of selling it because the federal government is, you know, subsidizing this thing by the billions. They're throwing billions of dollars into all of this. And it's crazy. We need every dime available to deal with the climate crisis that we're really facing. Monica, as the <laughs> next generation, how does all that hit you that this is what your government dollars are doing for you in your future? I mean, I think it's just always crazy to me. Like we live in a society. I was just saying, Karen, how like I don't know too much about carbon capture, but like I've been reading up on it recently and they always talk about it in my law school classes. And I think my teachers always tout it as like a great solution even though, and then I sit there and roll my eyes and my teacher's like, Annika, do you have something to add? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you could just plant a bunch of trees. That'd be great. Um, and I just think it's always interesting, the arguments that people bring up and how we live in a society that's like, we don't want our taxes to go to, you know, welfare or benefiting people who, um, for like public school subsidies and all that. But fossil fuel industry gets so many subsidies and they get so much federal funding. And nobody seems to care about that um, because it usually the people who throw up the stink about, you know, federal funding for real people are the people that these projects don't affect. And I was just reading about how in Louisiana, um, there's called Cancer Alley. So for people who don't know, Cancer Alley is this place in Louisiana that has like over 300 industrial projects. Um, and so it's mostly targeted at black and brown and indigenous communities. And so a lot of people have health issues and this is where they're also trying to put a lot of the carbon capture as well. And so it's still like a big industrial operation now on top of three other industrial operations that those communities are going to suffer. Um, so yeah, just frustrating all around as a, as a youth. Feels weird to say now, but. <laughs> she is youth, but we're both younger than her, Karen, in energy and <laughs> everything so there you go Annika you got to keep up with us man <laughs> so now Karen you a couple of weeks ago you convened a meeting where you called environmental leaders myself included from all over the area in the commonwealth of Pennsylvania to talk about a new solution for the climate crisis that the fossil fuel industry and politicians are advancing. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you convened that meeting and what we're talking about. Let's just lay the foundation for our discussion here. Let us know all about it. 
Great. Well, you know, um, to follow from what Annika was just talking about in the Gulf, where there's Cancer Alley, and where they're doing so much of this carbon capture and storage, you know, uh, I'm part of a national team that's been looking at all of that. And I was feeling um, as part of that team that for once, Pennsylvania was ahead of the game, that we weren't doing that, you know. And so maybe we had, you know, some area, some time or some room to work. Um, but uh, I learned early on that Pennsylvania was working on a regional CO2 transport plan along with several other states. And so it was supposed to come out in October. And so that's sort of a little bit of a backdrop for what was announced that um, you're referring to. And that's a proposal that um, has been made up in Northeastern PA and Luzerne County in uh, Nanticoke specifically to put in a plant that would do um, blue and green gasoline. And so the company proposing this is a company called Macero, like you mentioned. And, um, and the reason why it's all connected to what we're already talking about is that uh, blue and green gasoline, it's almost like it leapfrogs over all the other stuff that could have been happening in the state, because um, it um, would produce two different products, gasoline products, that they call blue gasoline and green gasoline. And I can explain that in a second. But then they also plan to manufacture uh, or produce hydrogen during that process. And the thing that makes the hydrogen blue is that it would involve carbon capture and storage. So now it's one big you know, mess of all these false solutions and one big package. But and Karen, <laughs> it's blue and it's green. So come exactly. on now, it's gotta be good for the environment, right? Well, I thought of a phrase last night and I thought, uh, if it sounds too green to be true, it probably is. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to use that for something. But, That's um, good. <laughs> so, you know, so that's one of the things so disturbing about this proposal, because if you listen to our legislators who are just so enamored of this whole thing and, you know, and are throwing subsidies at it, um, they make it sound like the greenest thing that's ever happened. And so, you know, they talk about how, um, you know, this would be, the gasoline would be produced using renewable energy. That would be the blue gasoline. And um, then they have the green gasoline, which would actually use renewable natural gas, which means nothing, and, um, <laughs> and captured flare gas, which also really means nothing. Um, but the, the blue gasoline would just be made from natural gas straight out. The thing that would make it greener would be that they would use photovoltaic solar to run the plant. <laughs> so, so there's photovoltaic. There's the fact that they say that they're going to do carbon capture and storage, which they consider to be green. You know, the blue hydrogen they consider to be a green move. Um, they also um, talk about in Pennsylvania how they're going to locate this thing on top of a coal mine. Um, so in old coal mines, so that they're reusing land um, and how they dealt with a, a, an organization called uh, Earth Conservancy to find the land. So it sounds so green in every possible way. It sounds so green. And yet, of course, none of it is because the core of it is using natural gas <laughs> to make gasoline. And there's a two-step process. Um, so uh, the, the technology that this company has licensed is from a Danish company called Haldor Topso that has developed this technology that is proprietary for half of it, but the first part is turning methane into methanol, 
which is already a lousy neighbor if you're sitting next to that plant because methanol is a carcinogen. So, you know, we got problems right out of the box with that. But then there's the proprietary part that really nobody really knows about that would turn the methanol into gasoline. And so the company, Nacero, has zero track record. It hasn't done anything since it formed in 2015. It started with the intention of putting out none of these plants to create none of these plants that would all use that licensed technology. But even Haldor Topso that created the technology only has one plant in the world that's using it and that's in Turkmenistan. And it's only been open since 2019. So there's no information about you know, compliance. There's no information to be gotten from a company that hasn't done anything yet on compliance. Um, there's no information about what kind of environmental review it went through in Turkmenistan, how it fared. You know, it, there's just no information. And so, you know, they're they're selling this thing like it's this proven technology. It's a six billion dollar investment by the company, and the state is already planning to throw millions and millions of dollars in subsidy at it. So, you know, it, it makes no sense, but they're, you know, they're really touting it as being the greenest thing in the world and it's just not. And that's going to be real challenge for people like us fighting it because we're just going to sound like a bunch of naysayers for saying that this thing isn't green enough. And it's really important that we make that case though, because it's the absolute truth. So Karen, just so I understand at the, uh, while you talked about, you know, all the, the green elements that they're peddling, the reuse of the of the old coal mine and the clean energy to run their operations. At the heart of it, they're taking fracked gas, changing it and making it gasoline that you can run in your car. Mm -hmm. That's it, so. That's it. And they say that the blue gasoline will reduce emissions in your, your, your vehicle's uh, carbon footprint by 50%. So it's still emitting, you know, it's just not emitting as much. Um, and then the, blue, the green version will um, reduce it to zero or below. So, and when they do that calculation, <laughs> when they do the calculation to, you know, claim these numbers, do they include in that calculation all of the, um, the climate changing footprint emissions from the actual fracking to extract the gas from the ground and all and of those devastating consequences? That's a really good question that we're trying to figure out the answer to because they talk about using captured flare gas to make the green gasoline, but how are they getting the gas to the plant? How are they capturing it? How are they getting it to the plant? Are they talking about just doing this with their own process. So, you know, whatever wells they're using to get the, the gas from that they're going to turn into the blue gasoline, that they would also capture the flares, you know, the flared gas from that, those, you know, well pads or whatever, and then somehow move that to their plant. Or are they talking about capturing all of it? You know, I, it just doesn't, they, they, they don't provide any answers. There's no real specifics on any of this yet. So, you know, it's all being handed to us, you know, with very little information to go on other than these, you know, top line messages about how green it is that legislators want to sell, but they don't get into any of the details of things like that. Well, so Karen, I'm curious, I've asked mom this question. So I want to ask you too, what is it? And maybe you both want to speak to it because carbon capture, I feel like is the new industry branding. And I feel like you both being lifelong activists and having worked on this so many times and like different issues that industry keeps being like, well, this is the reason you shouldn't shut us down because now there's this. 
like, you know, how is it, what's your reaction to now carbon capture being like the latest, like, this is why you shouldn't shut us down. Cause here's the solution after they've done this in like a myriad of ways. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's selling a false narrative that, um, that the carbon capture is somehow um, offsetting uh, the amount of stuff that we're dumping into the atmosphere. So we can keep dumping it there because there's going to be this technology that's going to clean it up. So don't worry about it. You know, it's like a trade-off and there's no proof of that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in some ways it's a little bit worse than the petrochemical boom, which pretends to be about plastics until they want it to be about energy. And then they can say that they're being green. They just kind of like play a complete shill game with that. But you know, with this, <laughs> yeah, this one, it's sort of like they, uh, you know, they, they have this justification that there's this, this uh, trade-off that's somehow beneficial. And so, yeah, they're going to keep pushing that hard. And I, you know, that's, that makes it so much more frightening because again, it has this, this, um, you know, pretense of being very uh, green and forward thinking. Yeah, I mean, if we lived in a world where it wasn't possible to just leave it in the ground, then that might sound like a more palatable solution, but we do live in, live in a world where we can leave it in the ground and that's what we have to do. So I was just thinking the other day, um, yesterday, in fact, about how long it's been since I went to a gas station because I have an all electric vehicle. And then some people might say, well, but Maya, you know, and I come home and I plug it in at night. I don't have to stop at the gas station. And then some people might say, well, Maya, how do you think that electricity is getting made? And um, of course, the way I respond is that electricity is getting made by the solar panels on my roof, right? <laughs> Which is just one small example of, you know, in, 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 in my household, one small example of how and why we don't need these dirty fossil fuel burning cars. And as mm -hmm. you said, there are zero emissions coming out of my tailpipe and um, from, from the pipe, because there is not one to create the electricity that my car runs on. So, you know, it really is doable if people had the financial resources. And that is where government of course, should be investing its money. It shouldn't be throwing, as you said, millions and millions of dollars at Nisero for a false solution that actually is perpetuating the fossil fuel industry and going to keep exacerbating the climate crisis, um, but instead should be investing that millions and millions of dollars in, in true, re clean, renewable energy, even if it's actually literally buying people solar panels and electric cars to put on the roofs and in their, in their driveways. Like, I'd be good with that, with Me that too. investment. Me too. I mean, that's one of the things that really concerns me. And so one of the reasons I convened that meeting a couple of weeks ago was to bring people together to figure out how to talk about this and how to get the real story out there. Because one of the very concerning claims that they're making is that you don't need to make a single modification to the car that you're driving today if you're still driving, you know, a gasoline powered car. Um, you can just pull up to their tank and fill it with blue gasoline and it's fine. You don't have to do a thing. And I'm honestly one of the people in that, you know, a financial situation where it's really hard for me to even consider buying an electric car. So I can imagine that it's very appealing to people who want to do the right thing. You know, that's so often how this works. People want to do the right thing and they're being told the wrong thing is the right thing, you know? And so, you know, so they're, you know, they're going to be given false hope that they're going to be doing something that's helpful to the environment when they're really not um, because they can use their cars as they're currently, you know, 
operating and they don't have to make single modifications. So I, you know, so I, I, I guess it's a situation where one of the points I think we need to be making is that, like you said, um, I'm tired of the government subsidizing the industry. I want it to start subsidizing the people, the taxpayers, by the way, <laughs> the people who pay for all of these subsidies. Uh, you know, when are we going to get subsidized? When am I going to be able to get my solar panels and stuff like that? Even if I, you know, can't afford it right now, you know, there's, even there's, if there's a way to give me a zero interest loan or something, you know, yeah. but do something, you're not doing a thing, you know, at the federal level or even at the state level, you know, to, to help us, nothing's happening. So it opens the door for this. And, and one of the very disturbing stories about this whole thing is the way the subsidies came about in the first place. I don't know if you want me to get into the I definitely want you to get into that because I was going to ask you exactly about that. So why don't you just jump right into, into that? Because that is really, that's an important part of the story. Yeah, really. I mean, to me, this is so disturbing. One of the things I say when I talk about my life in this you know, movement is I got in for the water, I stayed for the climate. But, you know, increasingly, I'm in it because of the democracy problem that we have. And this is a perfect example of that. Um, so uh, back in 2019, the Republican legislature introduced a package of bills called Energize PA. It was a bit of a poke at Governor Wolf, who was trying to get a severance tax with something called Restore PA. So they came out with this package of bills that was all about, you know, benefiting the industry, giving them subsidies, giving them breaks, you know, regulatory breaks and all sorts of things. Um, the centerpiece of the package of bills was called HB 1100. And it was a, a bill that would set up a subsidy for companies that use methane. And so that largely means petrochemical companies. And, um, and so it passed the legislature, but then Wolf vetoed it. And that's now 2019. So 2020 is the second half of that same session. Um, and so in the second half of the session, there was another bill. It was HB 732. And it would appear to be about um, giving some sort of real estate transfer tax break to volunteer fire companies. I mean, it was literally something like that. And all of a sudden they amended that bill at the very last minute when it wasn't really gonna go through a debate any longer. They amended the bill to include basically what had been HB 1100. It was watered down a little bit, but they entered that entire bill um, into the HB 732 bill about volunteer fire companies by amending it. And then they passed the bill real quick and Wolf signed it. And so suddenly we had the subsidy in place. And so when they talk about, you know, some of the press has come out about this plant and how they've been talking about this proposal for a couple of years, well, that's what they were talking about. And so at the time, I remember there was a lot of enthusiasm coming out of legislators from Northeastern PA about, um, you know, this bill, and they were really pushing it hard. And I was wondering why. And at the time we were told it had to do with um, pet, um, fertilizers, that they were going to have all these fertilizer plants in northeastern PA. And of course, that was a lot. And we knew it. We just didn't know what they were really planning. And this is what they were really planning. They were putting this subsidy in place so that they could help a, this company and other companies like it to put in, you know, a plant that's going to use lots of methane. That's what it's all about. So they're going to get millions and millions of dollars. I think it's up to $22 million um, just on, you know, I'm not uh, that from that subsidy alone, and there are going to be others, but just from that one alone, it's $22 million to this company. Well, and the thing that to me, that's, you know, um, just thinking about the, the, the democracy problem and the political problem is people have this false belief that the Democrats are good for the environment writ large, 
All Democrats are good for the environment. All Democrats are good for the climate. And as we know, right, all Democrats have been for fracking throughout the entirety of the history of the fracking industry, right? And some of the biggest advancements have happened not just under, but because of democratic leadership at the federal level and at the state level. And here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, for those who don't know, this, this while there's Republican leadership at the legislative level, there is a democratic governor in place. He's been in place for a number of years and he's as pro-fracking as they come. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that the second he got an opportunity, Governor Wolf, to not overtly support the industry, but to overtly support the industry by not vetoing this bill, he just grabbed at it um, and, yeah. and ran with it. Well, you know, one of the people who doesn't get targeted enough, I don't think, in all of our efforts is Dennis Davin, who's at the Department of, I always say the wrong one, Community and Economic Development. Um, so the Department of Community and Economic Development is this uh, you know, agency that really, you know, has been pushing a lot of the stuff having to do with the petrochemical boom in Pennsylvania. This is all part of it. So uh, one of the first people, who, you know, to cheered on the fact that this thing was being, you know, officially proposed was Dennis Davin. And he speaks for the governor. I mean, he's appointed by the governor. And so I know that in the course of, you know, uh, the two years of conversations that they were having, some of the meetings that they said they had were with the governor's office, with DCED, with lots of legislators, but, you know, definitely on both sides of the aisle, there's support for this. In fact, carbon capture and storage, just that piece of it, is being pushed harder by Democrats than anybody else. And so this is not a partisan issue ever in this state or even, you know, federally. Um, I mean, it's a big problem that there are uh, Democrats who are so willing to talk a good game on climate, but not really mean it. I call it climate denial Democrat style, you know, because they, but because it's so damaging to, you know, to, I mean, it's almost better to be, to be overt about it, to be honest about it. But when you're talking such a good game and then you do everything that you possibly can, not just to, to do nothing, but to make things worse, I, 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 you know, it's, it's so hard to fight that because, you know, anytime they put up candidates, and I don't want to get terribly political here, but, you know, there's so much fear of the other guy always, you know, in both directions. And so there's way too little um, pressure being put on people when they're uh, candidates to say, you need to be better on these issues. These are the issues I care about because they're just so worried that the other guy is going to win. And so then all of a sudden you're stuck with this person who's glad handing you on climate change and really doesn't mean it at all. And you and you you know you poll that you care about climate change, but this is a person you're putting in office. We got to stop doing that. So you know, a, a a a local version of what you just said is here in Radnor Township. There were a number of years ago, um, there was going to be a school board election. A lot of things happened in Radnor Township. Bad stuff that not just the um, uh, township commissioners push, but that the school board pushes. I mean, all kinds of bad stuff. Um, anyway, but years ago, there um, we were very, very concerned about some things that were happening with teachers and teaching and pay and um, programs at the school. And uh, so I called up the head of the Democratic Party in Randall Township and said, can you tell me about the, the, the people who are stepping up, you know, who you're considering to run for school board? Like, who are they? How are you picking them? 
You know, what are the questions you're asking them? And very literally, the answer was, Maya, we'll be happy to get whoever we can to run as a Democrat. And I said, no, I said, no, no, wait a second. I said, come on, you, you need to have minimum criteria. You need to have minimum criteria that you need to ask them and say, if you're going to run for school board on the Democratic platform, on any platform, you need to meet these minimum criteria of our political party. That's how you pick somebody. And the answer was flat out no. No, that they didn't do it and no, that they weren't going to do it, that they were just going to take whoever they can get. And we see that on the Democratic side. We see that on the Republican side. Um, you know, I don't know about other other parties, but it's very clear that that's it. If you if you take the name of the political party and you say you want to run, you're in. And there are no basic minimum standards, and it's just absurd. It is. I mean, it's it's very disturbing. You know, I mean, I I can't name all of them, but. Having been involved in politics, you know, over the years, um, prior to getting involved in the anti-fracking movement, I can think of many, many people I encountered who were running for office who were, uh, you know, people who converted. They had been Republicans, now they're running as Democrats, and some vice versa. Yudichek, the senator in, in that area of Pennsylvania where uh, the, the Sarah plant would be built, he was a, a Democratic legislator for a long time, and then he switched parties. And, you know, when it's so easy to do that you really have to wonder what's the difference between the parties <laughs> I mean you know it seems like uh, we have lots of people who run who may as well you know I, they call them Dino's Democrats in name only and Rhino's Republicans in name only you know we have so many people who are just doing it so they get the letter and behind their name that they need to get so that they can get elected where they are but that doesn't mean they're you know you know, uh, you know they're holding up the platform of the party. It means that they're doing the thing that they need to do to get elected. And, you know, and that puts us in a really bad situation because there should be differences. And, you know, aligning yourself at the party should mean something. You know, it should mean that this is the thing that most you know, matches your, you know, worldview and that you're willing to fight for that. So you're willing to pressure your candidates, but you're also willing to, as a candidate, fight for the right things. And that's not how it works. So it's up to us on the outside to always be pushing on the entire system to do better. So when when does Annika, who I know is chomping at the bit to put in public comment and testimony on this, <laughs> this Nisero project, we have to really, you know, you have so many quips and lines, Karen, we gotta like come up with the nasty Nisero or like, you'll do much better than <laughs> I. So, so at what point does Annika get to put in her well-crafted, public comment or offer her hearing testimony on this, uh, on the nastiness arrow. Uh, and this is the thing, one of the many things I think that we should be pointing out and fighting is that, you know, what Dennis Davin, <laughs> some hired hand, you know, some appointed guy, what John Udichak, some, you know, legislator who's pretty compromised and all of his buddies up there, you know, what they've done is bring a new industry to Pennsylvania and you didn't get a chance to say a thing about it. And so, yeah, and that's not the first time that's happened, but here, go, here we go again, where, you know, they've invited this whole industry, this whole new business into Pennsylvania and the people didn't get to say a thing about it. And so there'll be a two year process they talk about. It's supposed to take a couple of years to get, you know, all the zoning and everything else in order and then to get the permits and everything. And then I think another four years to build it. So we're already talking six years out, but, um, 
but the first chance you're going to have to say anything about it is when DEP is rubber stamping permits for the thing. You're either going to have a fake hearing and a fake public comment period where you get to submit things in earnest and they're going to ignore you, you know, because it's really theater. All that is ever theater to make it look like there's a process so that they can say, hey, we asked the public, you know, and then they do the thing they were going to do anyhow. So that's the first time you get to say anything and then it doesn't really matter what you say when you say it. And then, but we're going to walk in, Karen, and we're going to say, this is the Pennsylvania Constitution. Not really. That's my assignment. And I have a constitutional right to a clean and healthy environment. And we're going to stop them using the PA Green Amendment. I'm going to have a fancy scroll and roll it out. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And everyone else should do it, too. That's exactly right. That's exactly what has to happen. That's how it works. I mean, we have gotten a lot of things done for a movement that has like zero money even though there are some better healed organizations than others, in the end, compared to the industry, nobody has any money on this side of it, really. And yet we've won lots of battles. And it was because we did that. We, because we came together, we stood together, spoke as one, and, and we just need to keep building power. You know, we need to keep building the movement. And that's how it gets done. It's always the pressure from the outside. It's never because these guys do the right thing because they're such good guys. That's never how it works. <laughs> that's so... You know- Go ahead. Nope, you go, Annika. I well, I was gonna, I was gonna close out because I thought hey, that was you a go, perfect. girl. That's perfect. <laughs> um, but if you have something else to add, well, I really want to know from Karen. I know that you know that the that that the information is just coming out, right? That the grassroots movement is just building. Um, you know, through your leadership, we're just talking about putting together talking points and really spreading the word, but. At this moment, two things. One is there is there something that that you would like to urge people to do? And number two, want to make sure that we get which is the best, or maybe want to put out both websites for your organizations, so that um, you know when information starts coming up, or if people want to get involved with the other good works you do to help protect our communities from you know devastating environmental consequences associated with fossil fuels and other things. Where, where can people go, Karen, to stay connected with you and all of your good works, this issue and others? Well, I would say first, as a general point, if you are hearing about this and you're opposed to it, start calling your legislators now and telling them that you think it's a really bad idea and don't buy it when they tell you how green it is. Um, so I would say just start putting a bug in their ear now. We're gonna have way more things for you to do as we learn more and we gather more information so that we can make a bigger case against this thing. But you know, if, if this doesn't strike you as a good thing right now, call your legislators and say, don't you dare vote for anything that pushes this project forward. So that's one thing. But um, yeah, I mean, if you want to get involved in any of the work that we're doing, and if you want to get involved in any larger anti-fracking work and all of that, then um, my website for Burst Gas Truth is gastruth.org. Um, and then the, the website for the coalition is betterpathcoalition.org. And if people go to gastruth.org, Karen, can they make a donation um, to in support of, well, for serious, I mean, really, Karen, you are a powerhouse, but, mm-hmm. you know, you do so many things and resources are necessary to do that, whether it's to cover your time or to cover those fact sheets or, you know, the, the scrolls that you actually, you know, bring to public hearings, your countdown clock for the climate crisis that you brought into it. Yeah, you need to tell us about that before you go. That you brought, <laughs> These are things that all take resources and people who don't have the time to do this work on their own, 
can rest assured that you're doing this work and that they can help by making a donation. So which is the best site to go to to support, you know, we, the, you? Yeah, actually, uh, on gastroof.org, there is a donation link. Um, we also have one on Better Path Coalition, and we do have a fiscal sponsor since it's a group of groups. That's what a coalition is. But we do have a way of receiving uh, donations there as well through our friends at Marcellus Outreach Butler. I have to give them credit for doing that because that's a lot of work for a little group. So we do appreciate that. But yeah, so both ways, either site, you can help out the work that we're doing. And just tell really quick, um, you had a countdown clock uh, for a certain hearing and a certain thing happened. Can you just tell that story? Because I think it just is very striking. You know, this is this is what you do. You make sure the voice is heard and this is what government does. They they try to shut down people like you. So I think it's a nice um, little example of that. Well, if you're not familiar with Daryl Metcalf, um, he is um, a, a state representative, um, very uh, prominent in the Republican party who used to be the head of the state government committee and was removed from that chair when he was, um, just too controversial for them. Actually, he had a homophobic meltdown. And so they finally removed him and put him on the environment committee, yeah. And so he's been um, really in place since, I guess, the beginning of 2019. And he's been having all of these uh, climate denier hearings and things like that. So he was having another one recently. We organized, because um, we like to go there. We went there the first time dressed as mythical characters with the message, uh, we're amidst climate change isn't and then we went back to the next time wearing tinfoil hats you know which really bothered him but um but this time we went back we, we wanted to have a more serious message this time because we're escalating and it's getting more serious and so uh, we went there ready to disrupt um and talk about how you know it's code red for humanity and all that kind of stuff but i had just gotten a climate countdown clock that shows how much time we have left and it's just ticking away as you're looking at it, you know? So I took that in there and my intention was to sit there throughout the meeting, just holding the clock. I got a front row seat. I was gonna hold it up in his face the whole time. And before the meeting even started, he kicked me out. Ah, man, you are powerful even when you don't speak, Karen <laughs> Ferridan. He can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on today, talking with us about this devastating nasty Nacero project, about industrial carbon capture, and about all of the great works of Burke's Gas Truth and the Better Path Coalition. People go to gastruth.org, support Karen. It's really important work. She is literally working to save the world. Mm -hmm. And pay attention because we're gonna be in Harrisburg in the spring taking a message about climate and how they are, they're having the wrong conversation about climate in Harrisburg. We're gonna take that to them. We're gonna be out in the streets. So pay attention for that save the date. Awesome. Is there a save the date up on the website yet or it's coming? It's coming like whenever I'm off of this. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so go to Karen's website and actually by the time this airs, it'll be up. It'll be up. awesome. And yeah. I will say, I'm looking forward to being there with you, Karen, being out in the streets to make a difference. So thank you so much for your good work. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. So, Annika, wow, that was a lot to take in. What are your thoughts about all that? I mean, I think it just yeah, I, I would just, I think the takeaway is that everybody should do their own research and that just because um, fossil fuel industries or maybe in your town you see those cool billboards or commercials, 
shouldn't take it at face value. There's usually a lot more to what the fossil fuel company and even our governments put out um, up front. And also, if you have the time to dig into legislation, you'll find a lot of things that actually are. They tell you one thing on in the news article, but it's a whole other different thing when you actually read the bill. And I think Karen just really kind of drove home that organizations like hers and what she does cannot do what they do without the help of everybody, not just, you know, donations are a big thing that lends resources, that lends those great fact sheets and time that we want those organizations to put in, but also joining your voice with them is a powerful thing because nonprofits are representatives of the people. And it's also great when the people can show up with us. Um, So those, you know, those are the big take-homes, I think, for anyone listening to this. And I think, you know, Karen is the, is the embodiment of one person can really make a difference. Oh yeah. I mean, Karen really, you know, she, she was out there, started to see what was happening in the world. It was upsetting, upsetting her, bothering her. She started to get involved. She got more and more involved. She got more and more involved. And at this point, she's dedicated her life to really taking on the fracking industry and very literally fighting to save the world. I mean, that is what Karen does. And she's a very powerful voice. She's a very powerful organizer. And to me, she's a true inspiration. And it really does show, look out there, as Annika said, whatever you can do, large or small, it makes a difference. It's powerful and it's meaningful. And when we join our voices together, we really can make a difference. Um, So go to gastruth.org, support Karen. And in addition, you can also support the work that Annika and I do at Green Amendments for the Generations. Annika talked about the Pennsylvania Green Amendment, um, you know, and how we are going to pull that out when we're testifying against Nacero. But more importantly, we're going to try to use that Pennsylvania Green Amendment to stop the nasty Nacero. I don't know. I sound very Trump-like when I say that, don't I? Nasty Nacero. So <laughs> we're going to try. I wouldn't to compare it. anything you do to Donald Trump. We had to, it's like the word is just charged. Like, I feel like whenever I say like, you know, we're going to like Trump that, like, I can't even say the word like on its own because it's just too charged now, but no, nothing you, okay, we're well. allowed to have quips. That's fine. We had quips before he was around. So I, you know, it's funny you say it. So I, for, for those who've read my book, The Green Amendment, I'm working on a second edition and I'm working on not just updating the information, um, but, you know, bringing new stories, updating about the Green Amendment movement, what's happening, where it's happening, what are the successes that are being accomplished with the, with the Pennsylvania, Montana Green Amendments in, in, in place. We don't have New York Green Amendments successes yet because the New York Green Amendment just got voted upon um, November 2nd. But that was a powerful success, and I want to make sure that I capture it in the book. But as I'm going through the book, you know, I'm really recognizing, oh, yeah, I really did bring forth a lot of information on a lot of fronts um, having to do with the environment and, and, and community engagement. And uh, I was putting in uh, an update literally this morning about how quickly Donald Trump got to work rolling back environmental protections and how over the course of his presidency, over 125 regulations and policies were Mm -hmm. rolled back or undermined um, by that man. And I I can't bring myself to say anything other than- I call him a swamp monster. <laughs> That's what I think. I don't even think he's a man. <laughs> swamp monster. But in the book, I definitely don't call him president. I don't call him Mr. I just call him Trump or Donald Trump because I just can't bring myself 
to reference him in, in any other way other than mm -hmm. just the basics of his name, because he has inflicted so much harm on so many and he doesn't care. I mean, he enjoys it. He enjoys knowing that he's harmed the earth. He jokes about, oh yeah, I, I, imagine that. I'm called an environmental leader. Ha ha. I mean, that was, you know, one of the articles I was reading and it's like that, you know, that, that is so sick and so sad that you, that you love the fact that people joke about you being an environmental leader because everybody knows how devastating your presidency has been for not just the environment today, but for the world and generations yet to come. Anyway, why we need constitutional environmental rights, AKA green amendments in every state constitution, because it makes it that much more difficult, if not near impossible to roll back essential environmental laws and create better ones as we go forward. And if you want to support that movement, <laughs> www.forthegenerations.org. We really need your donations. We really need your support. It's a powerful movement that's growing very, very quickly, but the funders have been slow to come to the table. So in order for us to be able to step up and, and provide all the support, all the communities need in the dozen plus states where the Green Amendment is um, where a Green Amendment proposal is advancing or in the three states where there are Green Amendments in play right now, we really need your donations. Forthegenerations.org, www.forthegenerations.org. And in terms of taking on the Nacero project, the fracking industry, um, and the devastating consequences of the fossil fuel industry, Green Amendments for the Generations is part of that work through our Green Amendment movement. And so too is the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, www.delawareriverkeeper.org. Get engaged, get involved, support Delaware Riverkeeper Network with your donations because those dollars go directly to work in so many vital ways, including taking on the fracking industry. We have a moratorium turned ban against fracking within the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed, very literally because of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. A lot of partners came together a lot of leaders, Burke's Gas Truth, Karen Faraday was early to the table. A lot of other organizations came and joined with us, but I really believe Delaware Riverkeeper Network was at the front of the line. Well, I believe, I know. And, you know, so please join us, support us, work with us because um, we do a lot of good works there too. And don't forget, if you like everything that we say or you like our podcast, please be sure to share it, post it, um, if you think that you have something interesting to say or have an idea for a guest, we are always open to that. So feel free to shoot us a DM or a topic that you're interested in that you'd like us to talk about. Um, we come up with these ideas, but we love community engagement. So share, let us know. We're on Spotify and Google podcast right now. Um, yeah. And on YouTube, you can watch this. If you're a visual person, you can see our beautiful faces on YouTube. <laughs> Um, but I think that's it for us this week. So thank you everyone for tuning in for another episode of Green Jeans and we will be back next time. Anything else to say? Maya? That's it. Talk to you next time.